healthy selfishness. Perhaps you've had an experience similar to Alice's, when a new understanding reared up like a tsunami, startling and disturbing and undeniable. Perhaps in time you discovered the gift in the message and wondered how you managed to suppress your real feelings from yourself and others for so long. Even individuals who wield significant power at times withhold their real thoughts and feelings from those central to their success and happiness. It has much to do with an underlying impulse to survive by gaining the approval and support of others, boss, customers, co-workers, investors, family members, who we imagine hold the keys to the warehouse wherein is kept everything we want and need. To ensure that such power brokers are on our team, we aim to please. While the desire to please is not a flaw, at crucial crossroads sometimes we go too far, way too far. When faced with a so-called moment of truth, we find ourselves chucking the truth over the fence or tucking it behind the get drapes in exchange for a trinket of approval. What's that behind the curtain, you ask? Oh, nothing important, just my entire identity. May I refill your wine glass? Some fear that becoming authentic is a form of selfishness and unknowingly limit the possibilities for their careers or within the relationships, feeling it's inappropriate to put their own interests first. After all, what would people think? During a workshop, Lauren, a delightful woman in her 40s, described the unsettling experience of awaking one morning unrecognisable to herself. Having spent a lifetime accommodating the needs and desires of so many others, both at work and at home, she developed amnesia about who she was and what it was she wanted to do with her life when she was younger and all the possibilities seemed so vast. At another workshop, a participant said, I always drive carefully when there's someone important with me in the car. It took her a moment to understand why everyone in the room was gasping. Do you think you shouldn't need the help, encouragement and support that you give to others? What else do you think? I shouldn't need to be told that I'm loved. It's not fair to insist on quality time with my partner. After all, he or she is so busy with work. I really need to talk this issue through with my boss, but she has different priorities. Successful relationships require that all parties view getting their core needs met as being legitimate. You won't articulate your needs to yourself, much less to your work team or life partner, until and unless you see getting your needs met as a reasonable expectation. So pry the permission door open just far enough to consider that you have a right to clarify your position, state your view of reality and ask for what you want. I'm not suggesting any of this is easy. There's always a risk. A magnet on my fridge door says they would have passed a pleasant evening had shit not gotten real. I hope that doesn't offend you. I laugh every time I see it. Sorry, (laughs) the dog was trying to get out of the door and I was just sitting here staring at him. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Right, I'm back in the room. (laughs) This is the difference between a real audiobook and a Joe audiobook. (laughs) Um, Coming out from behind yourself is part of the search, whether born of panic or courage, for that highly personalised rapture of feeling completely yourself, happy in your own skin. It is a reach for authenticity, a process of individualisation. When you cease to compare yourself with others and choose instead to live your life, it is an opportunity to raise the bar on the experience of your life. It is a deepening of integrity. 
when who you are and what you live are brought into alignment. No more damping down your soul's deepest longings in order to get approval from others. As Andre Gide wrote, it's better to fail at your own life than succeed at someone else's. Authenticity is a powerful attractor. The singer James Taylor has said, I am myself for a living. When we free our true selves and release our unique energy, others recognise it and respond. It's as if we have set ourselves ablaze. Others are attracted to the warmth and add their logs to the fire. The principal job at hand is to intertwine addressing your current business and personal issues with self-exploration and personal development, building a bridge between yourself as a person and yourself as a professional. The assignments in this chapter are designed to help you ground yourself in original thought and potent action, in work that breaks you open and devastates your habitual self. Parts of your habitual self serve you wonderfully, while others stand squarely in the way of your happiness and success. Do you know which are which? The good news and the bad news. My colleagues at Vistage often say, we advertise for CEOs and human beings show up. For example, the visionary who founded the company often lacks the attention to detail needed to run the business on a daily basis. The parent who always kisses a child's hurt to make it better may fail when it's time to teach the child to identify and solve the source of pain. The good news and the bad news are the same. The news is, our companies, our relationships and our lives are mirrors accurately reflecting us back to ourselves. The results with which we are pleased reflect parts of ourselves that are working well. The results that disappoint and displease us reflect aspects of ourselves, beliefs, behaviours that simply aren't working. Douglas Stone, author of Difficult Conversations, suggests... To say of someone, he died with his identity intact, is not a compliment. When our idealised views of ourselves are set in stone, despite evidence that there's an imperfection or two, or three, the people in our lives have little recourse other than to work around our flaws or to leave. We can see an organisation or a department or a relationship with clarity only when we look ourselves full in the face. In workshops, I ask participants... Barring all else, what is one word or phrase that absolutely describes you? Before you read on, take a moment and do this for yourself. What is a word or phrase that unfailingly describes you? Write it down. Stephen, a workshop participant, recently declared with great conviction, the word is focus. Everyone who knows me will tell you that I'm focused on what's important and on getting it done. After all, the participants have shared their words. After all the participants have shared their words, I suggest think of times and situations where you are exactly the opposite of this. Some insist I'm never the opposite. When pressed to identify a time when he is not focused, Stephen realised that while he is extraordinarily focused on his job, many weekends are given over to aimless activities. I'm just hanging out, slumped in a chair, watching TV, eating chips. I'm not focused on quality time with my wife or achieving personal goals. I told myself I was going to pick up a guitar I haven't touched in years. It's still in the closet, missing two strings. My accountant recently asked me to sign a paper that would allow her to act on my behalf when I am in absentia. I laughed. After all, a word that describes me, at least most of the time, is present. But it got me thinking... When am I not present? With whom? 
when I'm tired, when something else is pressing on my thoughts. At times like these, I have to forcibly reel myself back to the present. I'm not always successful. The purpose of this exercise is to help us recognise the multiple realities about how each of us shows up in the world, not just when we're at our best. If we're to develop as leaders, as human beings, our very identities, primal things must become fluid. For example, is it a fact that you are fair-minded, good-hearted and generous of spirit? Okay, have you ever wished, just for a moment, that something bad would happen to someone who has wronged you? Well, that's true about you true. That's true about you too. It's neither good nor bad. It's just what is. One of the most painful realisations upon reaching 40 or 50 or 60 can be that you have no discernible identity, that somehow your identity has been compromised. It's not that your credit card or social security number was stolen or, or that your email was hacked. It's that an internal voice is whispering, insisting, this isn't you. This isn't enough of you. Parts of you are failing to show up. In Steve Tessick's novel, Carew, Saul Carew admits, It occurred to me that I wasn't a human being anymore. Probably hadn't been for some time. I was a loose cannon whose spin and charge and direction could be reversed at any moment by forces outside myself. It is through such humbling insights into ourselves that we come to know, reshape and trust the self we may then offer to others. It takes courage to look at ourselves unflinchingly in the mirror called our lives. Sometimes what we see isn't particularly attractive. The truth will set you free, but first it may piss you off. Meet Tom. You'd like Tom. Everyone likes Tom Porro, a member of a group of key executives that I chaired in Seattle for many years. He is funny, good-natured, candid, authentic and skilled at putting his finger on the source of any issue under discussion. Tom's metabolism is the envy of everyone. He appears not to have one ounce of fat on him. Yes, we hate him for that. His mind is equally lean and mean. Don Aubrey, another member of the group, introduced Tom to mountain climbing. Don was all grins as Tom made trip after trip to REI, Seattle's famous everything-you-could-ever-need-to-do-anything-outdoors store, eventually buying every piece of climbing gear known to man and spending as much time as his wife would tolerate learning the sport. In fact, just before his and Don's planned climb of Mount Rainier, Tom had spent 13 years climbing in Alaska. The four-person climbing party had purposely, purposefully split up. Don and JJ, an experienced female climber, got a four-hour head start. They planned to reach base camp, recuperate and greet Tom and Mike, the climb leader, with a hot meal. At about 10 o'clock in the morning, halfway to base camp, Don and JJ came to a glacier where bamboo poles marked the recommended route around a crevasse. A snow bridge offered an enticingly direct, shorter route to base camp. The snow bridge seemed solid. However, after Don carefully examined the dark crevasse, the path marked by the poles was clearly the wiser choice. He and JJ took the longer route. When they arrived at base camp, it was sunny and clear, a gorgeous day. Tom and the, le and the leader arrived at the glacier at about two in the afternoon. They sat in the snow and retrieved sandwiches from their packs. Tom glanced towards the crevasse, then at the bamboo poles. Tom and Mike had discussed route options, and Tom was to take the lead on this section of the climb. He gulped down the last of his meal, turned to Mike, and said, I vote for the snow bridge.
Tom moved quickly without roping up, a cardinal sin in mountain climbing. As Mike stood to shoulder his pack, he was horrified to see the top of Tom's head disappearing as the snow bridge collapsed beneath him. As Tom fell, he glanced off the ice walls, breaking something with each hit, a rib, the cheekbone supporting his left eye, another rib, an ankle, another rib. With each collision with the icy walls of the crevasse, Tom wondered, is this the one that's going to break my neck? Is this my last moment of consciousness? Tom fell the equivalent of seven stories. If he had not landed on a three-foot-wide ledge of ice, he would still be down there. It took a rescue crew hours to get him out of the deep, narrow ice box. Each pull on the rope sent showers of snow down the crevasse. It was feared that a large chunk would dislodge and finish Tom off. When Don and JJ heard about the accident on their radio, it was too late to get back down the mountain, so it was the next day before they could retrace their steps. On the way down the mountain, Don photographed the crevasse. He and JJ stopped at a one-hour photo developing shop and got the film developed. When they walked into Tom's hospital room, the first thing Tom said was, the snow bridge looked solid. This was your basic moment of truth. The executives in Don and Tom's group had have had many a fierce conversation over the years and this seemed like a prime candidate for another one. Don took a deep breath and said, You look like hell, buddy. I'm awful glad you're alive. But that snow bridge did not look solid. It was risky enough at ten in the morning. Look at this photo. You got there four hours later. Four more hours of melting in full sun. What the hell were you pretending not to know? Tom did look awful. Since one of his eyeballs was hanging disconcertingly low in its socket, he could barely see the photos. He squinted and moved the photos farther from and closer to his face, attempting to focus. After about a minute, Tom became abnormally still. Not at all like our familiar, attention-deficited friend. After a long silence, he murmured, God almighty, what was I pretending not to know? At a meeting two months later, Tom hobbled in for a session with the group. We insisted on a blow-by-blow account of the entire misadventure, which was sobering and graphic to the point of inducing nausea and a keen desire to rush home and kiss our children. After Tom had answered all the questions, he shared his insight. Well, now I know what a fierce conversation is. I had the fiercest one of my life while plummeting into a crevasse. It was brief, but memorable. We all laughed as Tom continued. Lying in the hospital forced me to be still and think about some things. I saw that the way I approached that crevasse is pretty much the way I live my life. One foot after the other, head down, don't look up, don't ask for help, don't listen to advice, no time, just move, now, now, now. Rope up, sorry, too busy, got things to do. We nodded. We knew Tom and we knew ourselves. Most of us weren't much different. Then Tom added quietly, It almost cost me my life. While most of us don't behave in ways that put our lives at risk, without realising it, we often put our careers and our relationships at risk at the conference table or the kitchen table by operating much of the time like Tom, by not paying attention to what others are really saying or asking, not even to our own words. Instead, we string meaningless words together, all the while complaining that today seems an awful lot like yesterday. A nervous breakthrough. I remember Beth, a woman who attended one of my workshops several years ago. It was January, 
the class was held in the visitor's centre of the Washington Park Arboretum. The winter view out the windows put us all in a reflective mood. Beth had been quiet, lost in thought for the better part of the day. At one point I said, Beth, will you let us in on your thoughts? She answered quietly in a soft southern accent. I've been thinking about my life. We waited. Beth barely took a breath during the following stream of consciousness. When I was first married, I was right on time with the biological clock, which set the pattern of correctness correctness and timely dutifulness and the predictability of a marriage that lasted 14 years, kids, two of them, of course, divorce, a second marriage which was a disaster because, like everyone who divorces after 14 or 18 or 22 years, you're crazy as a loon, only you don't know it and you think you've learned so much and now you know what you really want or at least what you don't want. And then this man shows up who tells you you're the one he's been looking for forever. And your body wakes up and you feel attractive and valued and excited about life again. And so what if he's a lot younger than you? Than you? And even though all your friends and all the books and articles warn you that it's too soon, that you need at least a year or two to figure things out and date several people, what's the rush, etc., etc. You're so caught up in the look in his eyes and besides, he seems to know what he's doing and it just feels so good to be in love or in lust again that you go ahead and marry him. And then it takes a week or two, maybe a month, to figure out that you blew it. All your friends and books and articles were right. I mean, he doesn't even know the words to your favourite songs. But then it takes a year or two to finally give up and get out and then you finally meet someone right for you and you marry him and settle into your life together and you don't see it coming one morning two weeks before Christmas when you're reading the newspaper over a cup of coffee and you're in your nice home with your nice husband and you're suddenly terrified that your life will continue exactly as it is until the day you die and you realise you better put your seatbelt on because lunacy is sitting in the corner behind the Christmas tree and it just irritates the hell out of me that all this is part of the schedule, you know, all that midlife crisis stuff and I'm right on time as usual. I'm a compulsive punctual. There was a stunned silence, and then Beth chuckled. You all can laugh. I think I'm having a nervous breakthrough. (laughs) We roared with appreciation for an authentic kindred spirit. What Beth did was show up to herself. The following assignments will help you show up to yourself, as boldly as Beth and Tom. They will require you to be daring, but let's face it, you've tried prudent planning long enough. It's time to show up in 3D, cinematic, widescreen surround sound to yourself. Even perhaps to overhear yourself saying things you didn't know you knew. It's highly likely that your own learning will be provoked. First, you will do a gut check on how you feel about your life today. Next, you'll describe key aspects of the future you desire. Third, given the gap between your current reality and your ideal future, you'll identify the conversations you need to have with others. Finally, before you've conversations with anyone else, you'll have one with yourself about an issue that is troubling you. What are the rewards for coming out from behind yourself into the following conversations and making them real? You will find yourself abandoning the safety of confusion. Confusion and safety are illusions anyway. For the juice and motivation of clarity. You will nurture your own deepening dissolution and the emergence of healthier, more effective qualities and behaviours. Your desire to influence or control others will be balanced with a willingness to surrender. As a result, you will move toward what you desire. Happy relationships, personal freedom, professional accomplishment, 
a life that simply fits you better, a lot better. The experience of being awake, alive and free. Assignment one. Annie Dillard wrote, How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. How are you spending your days, your life? Write down how you feel about yourself, your life and your work. Several words or phrases that capture your thoughts and emotions. Myself. My life. My work. Assignment two. Write your personal stump speech. There are several forms of stump speeches. One of my favourites is Kevin Costner's memorable I Believe speech to Susan Sarandon in the movie Bull Durham. Most women recall the line, I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last three days. Uh Uh-huh, moving right along. In Chapter 6, if you're a leader of a company or a team within your company, you will write your corporate stump speech. For your stump speech, I suggest you take a broad perspective. You'll answer four questions. Where am I going? Why am I going there? Who is going with me? And how will I get there? It helps to pull back from your life and look at it as if you're the screenwriter, director, producer and star. What's the plot? What's the story? What do you want more than anything? What's the conflict? What's the ideal ending? You can't always foresee the interesting side trips you may take, but where are you headed? A trajectory and destination are essential for clarity, even though you'll make course corrections throughout your life. As wisdom and maturity broaden your perspective and scrub that last shred of inauthenticity from you. But for now, where you are today, take a stand for the ideal future you envision. This exercise requires (coughs) and deserves time, ideally a personal retreat, at a minimum several hours. Your living room will work just fine. Though, if possible, I suggest that you get out of your everyday environment. A change in your literal horizon will boost your ability to see new horizons for your life and career. This fierce conversation with oneself during which we revisit our personal stump speech has become so valuable to me through the years that I go to considerable lengths to ensure the quality of that conversation. Each September, I take a long walk, typically five to seven days, alone. The purpose of my September walks is to revisit, re-clarify and recommit to what my soul desires. One of my favourite walks was through the Yorkshire Dales in England. It was a late afternoon on the first day before the chatter in my head began to quieten down. By day two, I felt completely alive, overcome by the beauty of the territory. Most of day three was spent on the high moors. My only companions were sheep, rabbits and curlews. Mid-afternoon, I climbed atop a stone outcropping to enjoy my lunch and drink in the view. Before following the footpath that would take me down into a village for the evening, I invited a fierce conversation with myself. Am I on the right path? Is the life I'm living an authentic expression of who I am, of who I wish to become? Is there anything I'm pretending not to know? What is next for me? I got answers. In the late afternoon, I descended from the high moors into a churchyard. It had been blue sky and warm sun all day and I had drunk all the water I'd carried with me. So I asked a man who was working on the landscaping if it was okay for me to go into the church and fill my water bottle. 
He looked me up and down and then said, From the looks of you, love, twere me, I'd go to the pub and have myself a pint. Did you know that there's often a pub across the street from churches in the UK? How convenient. The pub was dark and cool. I said to the bartender, I'd like something cold and strong. A customer said, give her a black sheep. Heaven. That evening, on my bedside table in a cosy inn, I found the book Watership Down, which I had read to my daughters years ago. It was delightful to reread parts of this favourite book, reacquainting myself with Hazel and Fiverr and the peculiar language of rabbits. I was deeply happy. On this night, outside my window, three stars soaking up twilight lit the way forward, and I was certain of the path. Why is it so important to spend time conversing with ourselves? Because all conversations are with myself and sometimes they involve other people. This is incredibly important to understand. Embracing this insight changes the way we relate to and interact with everyone in our lives. I may think I see you as you are, but in truth, I see you as I am. I see you through my own highly individualised context. The implications are staggering, and not the least of them is this. The issues in my life are rarely about you. They are almost always about me. This means that I cannot come out from behind myself into conversations with others and make them real until I know who I am and what I intend to do with my life. Each of us must first answer the question, where am I going, before we can address the question, who is going with me? It's essential not to get those out of order. The September following the walk in the Yorkshire Dales, you would have found me in the Swiss Alps. This past September, I walked the Cotswolds in England, 102 magical miles of footpaths. When I'm alone in nature, my life automatically properly reprioritises itself. I return to my family, to my company and to myself, refreshed, clear and clean. Whether you end up spending four hours at home or manage to get away for a day or two, your work, your relationships and your life will begin to be transformed as a result of addressing these questions. We bring into our lives whatever it is that we have the most clarity about. The trouble is most of us have a great deal of clarity about what it is we don't want. So guess what we get? Clarify what you want and don't allow your inner critic to edict your answers to the following questions. Set reality considerations aside. Just write whatever comes to mind. If you hear yourself answering, I don't know, to any of the questions, ask yourself, what would it be if I did know? Stump speech. Where am I going? Why am I going there? Who is going with me? How will I get there? Assignment three. Now that you've written your personal stump speech, you're ready to list the fierce conversations you need to have with others. They may be the conversations you've been assiduously avoiding for months or years. Some of them may be about the undiscussables in your life, the topics that you and others have been avoiding at home or at work, the topics that need to be addressed and resolved in order for you to move forward. You won't address them quite yet, but it's time to identify them. Write down the name of each person and a sentence or two about the topic for the conversation. For example, Bob, my boss. My career ambitions, in particular my desire to prove myself a worthy candidate for the position of VP of Operations. Jane, my wife. 
We're both so busy, we haven't spent much time together or had many laughs lately. I'm worried that our relationship is becoming stale. How do we resolve the challenges of our busy lives and create quality time together? Alison, my direct report. Her performance has really slipped. I no longer feel I can rely on her to get things done. The stakes are high for her, for me, for our department. I'd like to resolve this. Jeff, my son. I don't think he knows how proud I am of him, how much I love him. I want to tell him and schedule something special to do together. Fierce conversations I need to have. Person. Topic. Person. Topic. Person. Topic. Person. Topic. Assignment 4. In Chapter 1, you were introduced to the mineral rights conversation that I had with John Tompkins. In Chapter 3, you will learn how to take someone else through mineral rights. But for now, I'd like you to have it with yourself. I'm asking you to take on the issue that is troubling you the most. Perhaps the one that you least want to face. The one you sense may require courage you're not sure you have. You will need an hour, alone, uninterrupted. In preparation, identify your single most pressing issue, something that is currently going on in your professional or personal life that you want and need to resolve. In workshops, participants' issues cover a wide range. Our strategic plan looks good on paper, but it's not being implemented. We're headed for a bad day. I'm failing in my job. I'm, afra- my job. I'm afraid I'm going to be fired. My marriage is stagnant. My partner and I are housemates, not lovers. I'm overweight. If I don't make a change, my health will suffer. I suspect our sales manager has a drinking problem. I hear stories about what happens on the road. I've asked him about them, but he makes light of them. I just heard another story from a customer. My daughter may be doing drugs. I know she'll deny it. My job pays well, but when I imagine myself doing this for another 10 years, well, just take me out back and shoot me now. I'm successful in my work, but my personal relationships keep failing. To the degree that you are fierce with yourself, passionate, real, unbridled, uncensored, a mineral rights conversation will help you explore issues by mining for greater clarity, improved understanding and impetus for change. It will shine a bright light on that issue of yours, the one growling in the dungeon, and you'll live to tell about it. So now it's time to begin. Write down your response to each of the following questions. Do not edit your responses, just write. Step 1. Identify your most pressing issue. The issue that I most need to resolve is... Step two, clarify the issue. What's going on? How long has this been going on? How bad are things? Step three, determine the current impact. How is this issue currently impacting my career, the success of my team, my marriage? What results are currently being produced by this situation? How is this issue currently impacting me? When I consider the impact on myself and others, what are my emotions? Step four, determine the future implications. If nothing changes, what's likely to happen? What's at stake for others relative to this issue? 
What's at stake for me? When I consider these possible outcomes, what are my emotions? Step 5. Examine your personal contribution to this issue. What is my contribution to this issue? How have I contributed to the problem? Step 6. Describe the ideal outcome. When this issue is resolved, what difference will that make? When this issue is resolved, what results will others enjoy? When this issue is resolved, what results will I enjoy? When I imagine this resolution, what are my emotions? Step 7. Commit to action. What is the most potent step I could take to move this issue toward resolution? What's going to attempt to get in my way and how will I get past it? When will I take this step? Contract with yourself. During this fierce conversation with myself, I've identified a potent step to take to begin to resolve this issue. I have chosen the date by which I will take this step. There will be other steps, perhaps many of them. This is the first. I commit to taking it. Action. Today's date. Now take a break. Walk around. Breathe. Breathing is good.